Hey, I'm David Bitterman. If we've never met before, I'm a lawyer, and I've been doing this for a while. I started practicing when the latest tool was an IBM Selectric typewriter, if you all know what that is. I'm Jasmine Weatherell. I'm also a lawyer, but I'm a millennial who made the mistake of starting my practice in 2012, right after the Great Recession. And together, we're proud to host the Persuasion Occasion. It's a multi-generational look at advocacy and negotiation. Do I have this right, Jasmine? Millennials are accustomed to having a voice and seat at the table, and they're an optimistic group who loves social media and want their job and encounters to have meaning? Well, David, I'll admit there's some truth in there. But what about baby boomers? They're known for their strong work ethic and often define themselves by their professional accomplishments. Is that true, David? Jasmine, I have no idea. I'm too old to categorize those people, including myself. But let's talk about the show. We're going to look at persuasion from all dimensions. Our guests are going to include... Super lawyers, skilled negotiators, jury consultants, behavioral scientists, mind readers, and other experts, all talking about how to be an effective advocate. And we're really excited about working together. Maybe you more than I, David. (laughs) All right, but let's dive in. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, millennials and boomers, and those of other generations to uh, the Persuasion Occasion, where we talk about advocacy and persuasion from a variety of perspectives. My co-host, Jasmine Weatherall, is going to introduce herself in just a minute, but she'll just give me just one second to introduce our very distinguished guest host, Shane Reed. Information about Shane can be found at shanereed.com, but his books are phenomenal. There's one book in particular, Shane, that I I think is really great, which is Persuasion for Lawyers. It's sort of a general theory about how to be persuasive in in a variety of contexts. I would urge the guests to take a look at it. And Shane, I was actually first introduced to you, and I'll shut up. Our mutual friend has a trial seminar in Houston. He had your books there, and that was the first time I saw your books. So uh, in any event, I just wanted to mention that. And Jasmine, I'll shut up and turn it over to you, and then we'll, Shane, we'll actually let you talk. Well, it's good to be back, everybody. This is Jasmine Weatherell, your co-host. Let me give a quick kind of background on Shane, and then we'll turn it over to you to to give us some more in-depth information about yourself. So Shane Reed is a nationally recognized expert on persuasion, public speaking, and courtroom skills. Um, As David mentioned, he's the author of several books, including some textbooks on public speaking and persuasion for all sorts of people, really, not just lawyers. And he's tried over 100 trials and uses that knowledge and experience to provide persuasion and presentation skills training uh, to all sorts of people, including lawyers, business professionals, and even salespeople. So Shane, thank you for joining us. And if you would, could you give us a little background on yourself? Yeah, well, David and Jasmine, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for uh, several months, so I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. I'm very excited to... Uh, answer your questions and help your audience as best I can. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, went to high school there, and then went to college at Yale and then University of Texas Law School. And what got me interested in law school, I guess I always thought I wanted to go into politics. I'm not sure why. I just had a desire to help people. And when I got to college, I kind of realized I didn't have the skill set for politics. So I thought law school would be a great way to help people. I read books Uh, The young listeners will not probably know this person, but Jerry Spence wrote a great book about trial lawyers. When I read his book, I thought that is what I want to do is why I want to become a plaintiff's lawyer and help the person be David against Goliath in the courtroom. Well, when I got to law school, I came across this brochure for the Department of Justice, and that kind of struck me as something even stronger 
is to help on a wider scale uh, people uh, get justice. So I started pursuing a way to get with the Department of Justice. After I graduated University of Texas, I got lured to a big law firm and quickly realized uh, that wasn't such a good fit for me. So I then got back on track to what I really had my heart set on, which is working at the Department of Justice and wound up at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. and spent six years there doing. And what's great about that office, you do both misdemeanors, felonies, murders, and then also federal cases because it's a unique system there, right? It's the District of Columbia. So the D.A. is combined with the federal prosecutor's office. And I love doing that. And then got transferred to Dallas, back to where my family was, and spent really 30 years at the U.S. Attorney's Office doing civil defense, defending the government, doing white-collar crime prosecutions, bank fraud, child pornography, all that stuff. For 30 years, got a lot of trial work, and then have transitioned out to become a trial consultant in the last year or so, helping others tell their story in the courtroom. That's phenomenal. I didn't know you were in D.C. for a while. That's that's really interesting. I knew you were at a big law firm for a bit. You wrote a lot of books even when you were a U.S. attorney or a USA. And how did you start to do that? So I think my story is that I had my first trial in the U.S. attorney's office in D.C. Well, not my first, but kind of my first real one. And I lost. I looked around. I thought I did everything I've been taught in law school. I had pretty good facts. And I just was wondering you know, why I didn't win. And I was looking around at my colleagues and we were all kind of doing the same thing, what we'd been taught in law school. And David and Jasmine, what I decided to do was I wanted to find out what the great trial lawyers in that courthouse were doing. And I assumed that they would be doing what I was doing, just only at a really high level because they'd been doing it for 20 or 30 years or 15, just a lot more than myself. And then I realized that they were doing something completely different from what all of us had been taught in law school. And we'd all read the same book. I won't mention that book, but it was a very popular textbook in the 80s and 90s. All the law schools had kind of ingrained it in their teaching system. And I realized, oh, these great trial lawyers were doing something different. So I started writing books because I didn't want people to make the same mistake I did. And I wanted people to learn from great trial lawyers and great principles that really worked in a courtroom and not hypotheticals. So that's a long way of saying that's how I got started writing books is I wanted to help others and share what I was seeing really done at a high level that I didn't think had been written about or shared widely enough. And that was my goal. If you were to describe the difference between what you identified as being successful and what you wrote about and what was in the traditional textbooks, if you could capture that, what would you say? The main difference, I think, is lawyers coming out of law school, and it's still, still taught today to a wide extent, is we're all taught to spot as many issues as we can, give as much data and facts to the jury, and then let them come up with a decision. So it's more very logical, lots of facts, get all our arguments out, and then the jury will make a rational decision. With the great trial lawyers, I realized we're doing, they knew, they knew at least three things. They knew the brain science of persuasion, which is not what I just told you. Uh, secondly, they knew how to tell a compelling story, not just a story, a compelling story, and back it up with facts. And then third, they knew how to make complicated ideas very simple. 
And most other lawyers are just making those three mistakes by doing the opposite. Uh, they're just spewing out a bunch of facts and data. If they tell a story at all, it's not very compelling. And they always, almost always fail to make complicated ideas simple. So that was my goal was to get those three ideas into textbooks. And then the other component was the textbooks I saw before me had all been based mostly on hypotheticals. And I wanted to use actual trials, famous trials like the O.J. Simpson trial or the George Zimmerman trial, memorable events to teach these skills so that you could remember, oh, that's what worked or didn't work. And then also to show what great lawyers were doing be, instead of just hypotheticals. And I found that over decades of watching great trial lawyers in trial, there are all these principles that I just told you and more that they follow that have been successful. And it works for both plaintiff's attorneys, defense attorneys, prosecutors, defense lawyers. It's all the same. Shane, as you might know, we've got this uh, generational divide as part of our theme here on this podcast. So I I'm going to ask maybe a little bit of a curveball question. So, you know, people joke a lot that the younger generation doesn't know how to communicate uh, via traditional methods, I guess I'll call it. Um, there's these memes that we get scared when the doorbell rings and we don't like to pick up the phone to respond to people calling us. Do you think there's truth in that? Have you seen kind of a, a generational divide in the communication speaking skills between different, you know, boomers versus millennials or Gen Z? I've certainly seen, so I'm a baby boomer, barely, really Gen X, but I've certainly seen from the Gen X viewpoint of Gen millennials and Gen Z that that's what they're seeing. I haven't seen it. I still teach at SMU, so I haven't. I don't know. I just haven't seen as much because maybe I'm more in, in at the law school and not in the first year or second year associate level. But I've seen it enough comments that I'm, I'm, I don't want to judge a generation. So maybe there's a little bit of truth to it. Maybe there's a lot with COVID. But still, the persuasion principles, are they haven't changed. And what I'm coming up with were taught by Aristotle, you know, thousands of years ago. So just because COVID came doesn't mean, oh, there's a new way to communicate and persuade people. I, I do think, um, Jasmine, I guess a little more specifically, interpersonal communication, you know, face-to-face -face live has just proven to be the best way. Just like this video podcast, I wish I was in the room with David and Jasmine because I would sense you better, get to know you better instead of just this two-dimensional face. So yeah, th there's a, a negativity to not being in the same room with, with someone. So to the more that the younger generation thinks that's okay, oh my gosh, I mean, you're just not going to be able to network, get ahead, get to know people. If you're just on a computer screen, it's, it's just not the same. And we know it just talking to each other right now, right? It's not, there's something missing, right? So Jasmine, I actually had a psychologist on, on this uh, podcast who talked about, you know, body language. And most of it is from the, chest down. So you don't really see it on Zoom, but the hand gestures. I just love the point of, you know, all this body language, like no one here, well, if you're listening to it, you can't even see my face, which is like emoting a lot of information that you're lacking. But even if you're on a Zoom, you're right. You can't even see my hands gesturing. And like, that is the way we communicate. And if you're missing that information, it's a hurdle to, that's 
hard to overcome and maybe impossible sometimes. So there's a difference, Jasmine. I think uh, the younger generation needs to encourage themselves to get in the room, become live and don't hide behind Zoom. And I'm an introvert. My God, I, I would love working from home and Zooming the rest of my life, but that's not how society's built or human beings. So that's just not going to work. Yeah, absolutely. That's funny with someone who's a, a sort of a basically an expert on trials saying they're an introvert. It's funny, David. So when um, the court says, you know, you have 20 minutes for opening statement or closing argument, I'm never worried of going over the amount. I'm always worried about filling the amount of time. And for the <laughs> introverts listening or watching, that makes us good because we're very careful with our words and we're an extrovert might have the opposite problem. Oh my God, how can I fit it all into 20 minutes? So we have introverts have our disadvantages, but we also have some advantages we can bring. I try to be, you know, not bombastic, but a pretty loud speaker and stuff like that and et cetera. And when I could speak to a group, fine, but I am socially so awkward. Like if I had to go to like some of these cocktail functions where you're supposed to introduce yourself and I, I guess I freeze up. I like just hide in the corner. Jasmine, how about yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I, I, I feel the same thing, but it, for me, I feel like it's just, you got to practice, right? Just force yourself to go to these things. You know, when people ask me to go to these networking dinners, I always try to say yes. Cause I, I know it's like a skill you just have to build. Do you have to do that as part of your work, Shane? Do you have to go to these receptions and things? Yeah, and, and as an introvert, uh, Susan Cain, you know, has this famous TED Talk and a great book. So any of the introverts out there that are worried about persuasion, get her book, watch her TED Talk. And I just thought it was wonderful in that I still am myself, but in these networking events where it is an uncomfortable situation, I just set modest goals meet three people and then I'm out of there. And that's better than, oh, Shane, you've got to stay there for an hour and be miserable because this isn't your setting. Nope. Go in with the goal, make it reasonable and feel satisfied with that. Then like you said, Jasmine, the more you practice it, the more you'll get better at it and, and enjoy it, even though it's not your natural setting because it's important, right? It's important to share what you can provide to others and also hear what they can help you with. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. And, and I have a, a related question. You know, I, I'm at the point in my career where I'm trying to delegate a lot more things to junior associates now. And, you know, I one of the things I try to do is pass off these kind of low stakes hearings, you know, like a case management conference. And, and what I found is that a lot of junior associates have extreme anxiety about going to these hearings. You know, even when I'm like, it's a case management conference. You're reading these two things off this list that I gave you. So do you have tips for, for younger associates or maybe even uh, older attorneys on, on how they can overcome this kind of anxiety, which is uh, essentially an anxiety a, a, about public speaking, I guess? Right. So that's why I wrote this last book that David mentioned, The Winning at Persuasion for Lawyers, and then Jasmine, uh, you touched on. So chapter one is how to overcome the fear of public speaking. And the reason I wrote that chapter is that the college textbook that almost everyone uses on public speaking, 500 pages long, doesn't even have fear in the index because they just kind of assume that everyone loves to be in public and loves to speak. And we, uh, well, we all don't know, but like uh, the number one fear in America from Gallup every year, year, year is the fear of public speaking. Right. And more than death, right? 
more than death. And then Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Jasmine, your generation might not know him. Uh, David and I would. He said, you know, if you believe that study, that means that if you're a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a real fear. And to to overcome it, I mean, I I guess there are a couple things. One is to recognize, Jasmine, I would tell your younger associates, yeah, you're scared. Why wouldn't you be? Everyone is scared to walk into a courtroom. Everyone's scared just to stand up and give a toast. But now you go into a courtroom, it's formal. You've got another lawyer there. You've got a judge. So just recognize there's a fear. You're going to get through it. And the way you get comfortable with it is I tell people to write out success equals question mark. So what is success going to be at this hearing? And it might be, I'm not going to use notes. It might be, I'm going to just listen really well. Might be I'm going to answer the judge's question as best I can. Success is not win the case management hearing, even though there's really nothing to win, but it's not win, win, win. And if your focus is on the outcome or, oh, I'm going to let Jasmine down. I'm afraid I'm going to let the client down. That's not success because if you focus on the outcome, you just get more and more nervous. So focus on what you can control, which is Jasmine gave me this because she wants to see me uh, grow. I'm going to go in there. I know I'm going to be scared. And I'm going to do one or two, three things that I think I need to do to improve on, which is what I just said, whatever it might be. And if you have those modest goals, then you will succeed. And that will help you get the bigger outcome, which is to have a successful case management hearing. But if you go in there thinking, oh, the goal is not let the client down, not let Jasmine down, not let David down. Okay, then you it's just the anxiety increases, increases, and that is not the way to win. And this isn't just Shane's idea. This is what professional athletes do. They don't focus on the outcome. They focus on what they can control, whatever that might be, and then they practice it as much as they can. So those are the simple steps. That's great. I like that concept, the modest goals. I, I mean, you 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 gave the same answer for how to do well at a networking event, right? So that's interesting. I wanted to go back to one thing, though, to brain science, which you mentioned, because uh, the foreword to actually the book that we were just talking about has a very successful trial lawyer. And he mentions that, you know, he's influenced by thinking fast and slow and nudge and a lot of that behavioral psychology. And I'm just curious about I think it looks like when you started it, that may may have just been a fairly new field, but just wanted to see how you started to understand that and how you incorporate those kinds of things into your teachings and advice. It's everything now. I'm not sure when I got turned to it, but at some point I realized, yeah, I mean, the brain science is what make great trial lawyers tick and you got to know it. You don't need to know all of it. I would suggest to your watchers or listeners that uh, Robert Cialdini, C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I, Robert Cialdini, he wrote a book on persuasion, P-R-E-suasion, and then influence is kind of a similar book. But he will give you the easiest access to the brain science if you want to learn more about it. Uh, the Thinking Fast and Slow is the seminal book by a Nobel Prize uh, winner and economist. And that is the foundation for the current brain science on persuasion. 
that book is so impossible to read. <laughs> Everyone in business school has it on their bookshelf. Uh, I do too. I actually have read it, but I don't encourage others to read it. It's just so dense and it's hard to get the, the learning tools from it. And then in my book, I, I have a chapter on the brain science where I've summarized that. So it is important and everyone needs to know it just because there's some things you can't control and others you can. And the things you can control, you want to work on and get better at. So you'll have your, the best chance uh, to win based on your persuasion. If you were to s- distill some of the concepts either from the, you know, from the Caldini book or, or elsewhere, what would you, you say are sort of some of the key ones to understand it, to be persuasive? One is that our, our brain is kind of divided into two sides, this automatic brain and a reflective brain. This is based on thinking fast and slow. And the automatic brain makes quick decisions and likes to have information processed easily. And it really controls the majority of our daily life or we couldn't get through it. Our reflective brain is very deliberate, likes lots of details, likes to stew over things and then make those very hard decisions. The truth is our automatic brain is controlling the reflective brain and dominating us. So the science shows that you need to make complicated ideas simple. You don't dumb them down, but you make complicated ideas simple. Einstein said, if you can't explain it easy, you don't understand it well enough. So even Einstein realized about this principle of teaching others that you've got to understand it really well, whatever it is in life you're trying to persuade on, and then make those ideas simple so that the person on receiving end can understand it. And then David and Jasmine, you know what great trial lawyers do. We make it easy and then we back it up with facts. So you just can't make it easy and and be done with it. Have your trial, whatever your message is, boil it down to one sentence and then back it up with your expert witnesses. What everyone fails to do generally is they never get it down to one sentence. They never explain it simply. Instead, they just bring all the facts and all the arguments and all the details And our brain doesn't want to receive information that way. And then we get tuned out and move on to other problems. What's for dinner? What's in my bank account? Mortgage payment? (laughs) You know, all this other stuff. To follow up on that, another big point from brain science is that stories are the best way to communicate information. It's not making complicated ideas. It is framing what you have to say in a story. So I love the way your podcast is framed as a multi-generational way to uh, be persuasive. So you've got a a story and a framework for your podcast. And without that, it's just, it's just another podcast. So it's right. You've got a story behind it. And so the science is, that's how we understand it. Brene Brown said that stories are just data with a soul. So whatever information you have, give it some soul, give it some life, and that is how our brain will perceive it and remember it the best. That's funny what you say about thinking fast and slow. It's it's you see it on everyone's bookshelf. It's like the uh, the power broker. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. That everyone has that on their bookshelf. That's an impossible book to read. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else we should talk about with brain science? For some reason, I'm just really interested in that. I don't know why. It it just seems like it's a merging two different concepts. Well, there's a, the other principle is to have a strong theme with uh, within your story to make it memorable. 
And the idea is that people, uh, well, we all know confirmation bias, which is part of the brain science, that once your brain forms an opinion, it will look for facts to support that opinion and discredit facts that don't support it. So once your brain forms an opinion, it looks for facts to support that opinion and discredits equally good facts that might undercut that opinion. It's confirmation bias. And the reason that brain science principle is so powerful and how to use it is first impressions. What you say first is so important because once someone makes a decision, whether they like Jasmine, like David, like this podcast, like Shane, then you got them and they'll look, oh, that's why I like Shane. That's why I like David. That's why I like Jasmine. But if you don't start strong or don't have a good theme for your story at trial, then the other side's going to have a theme. And then once the jurors form an opinion, they're going to discredit anything you say, no matter how good it is. Uh, another example is in politics, right? We pick a candidate. And no matter what the other side says, ah, that's not true. That can't be true. My candidate is the one who's right. And you have this confirmation bias. And then everything supports your candidate. And all the other stuff doesn't, so you ignore it. So confirmation bias is real. It's powerful. We need to be aware of it. And the way to take advantage of it is have a good theme, start strong, and get people on your side as soon as you can. Because once you do, they're less likely to change their mind. Yeah. This is really making me think of something, actually. I, I have to recommend, if you haven't read it yet, the Time.com interview with Taylor Swift as the person of the year. She, throughout the course of the interview, tells all of these kind of short, compelling anecdotes about things that have happened to her in her career. And the theme really is, there was this incredible hardship and then a twist, and I overcame it. And my success was all the more sweeter because of the hardship I endured. And she, this happens like four times throughout the interview. And the article writer at the end even gets meta kind of and, and says, I realize, I recognize that she was doing this. And, and it's very interesting. You know, she's she's got this theme that she worked on and it appears multiple times throughout the interview. And it's it's this compelling story that makes the reader just super engaged with her. And she does the same thing in her music. So, you know, not, not just for lawyers, but for pop stars too. This idea of the theme, right? It's all genres of arts and communication, right? So songs are always looking for that hook, the chorus, the one line that gets you the same in telling the story in a courtroom. How can I make this interesting in a uh, memorable way? And it's a, a one sentence that has what you're talking about and takes a lot of effort, but the effort pays off. I didn't even know what a hook was until just recently when I started reading about songwriting. But now I guess you're right. Every song has got to have a hook. Right. The, the one sentence, right? Take the, take the complicated idea and make it into one sentence. That's your hook. <laughs> That's right. You know what a bridge is in, in these songs? What is a bridge? I, someone's got to explain that to me. I, I think it's kind of self-explanatory, I hope. You have a verse, you have a chorus, and the bridge is just a transition from the chorus or a verse to another part of the piece that's not repetitive of the verse or the chorus. It's just a little different, and it takes you from one place to another. So it may be a way to change keys, change moods, or just get you to another place in the song. So it's different chords than you're normally used to hearing in the song that get you somewhere else. Does that have a role at all in thinking about being persuasive, the idea that you have 
these repeat themes, but then you have a little bit of a bridge. Oh, sure. Right. So I, I teach, and I'm, I'm sure y'all are aware of this. When you're talking to a jury or anyone telling a story, a bridge in music would be something like this. Uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I've told you about topic A and topic B, and now I want to shift to something completely different. Let's talk about topic C. So in music, that would be the bridge and storytelling. It's just a transition that alerts the listener or the audience, hey, something different's coming up. And the musical notes are telling me we're going somewhere different, not back to the beginning. And it's the same in storytelling. It just, it's a signal to get the listener to go where you want to go. Let me do my transition now. Um, so, so, you know, actually, David's mentioned that we teach this class at UCLA. And as a part of that, we end up making a ton of PowerPoint presentations for the students. And it, it's, it is just an effective way to teach the class. And I know that you talk a lot about how to do effective presentations. And I'm really curious what your viewpoint is on this, because as lawyers, we tend to do these incredible text-heavy slides. And we've just found, you know, students end up not engaging with us anymore if you have a text-heavy slide up. They're, they're busy typing up notes, and they're not even really listening to what you're saying anymore. So do you have tips on how to make presentations that are better and more engaging to your audience? Sure. So no matter who your audience is, think pictures, not text. Think pictures, not bullet points. I pride myself I think I'm accurate in that none of my PowerPoints would ever have a bullet point. It's just a way to really force yourself to put pictures on there. And then I would limit it seven words, five words. I don't know. Cause Jasmine, what you're talking about, what lawyers do when you put a lot of, well, people put a lot of text up there for two reasons. One reason is they want to kind of communicate all this information to the audience thinking that's the best way to communicate. Secondly, they haven't prepared. And so, oh, now I can read my presentation and there it is on the screen. And I don't have to prepare it ahead of time to tell a compelling story or make a, an effective presentation. Getting back to the brain science, what's wrong with that is that if you deliver something orally, studies have shown that only three days later, I'll quiz you, Jasmine. How much do you think you remember if you just are talking? And three days later, you ask someone to remember what was said. What percent of what was said would you remember three days later? 50%. Yeah. You're way too high. Okay, David, give me <laughs> oh, a man. chance. She said 50. Well, if you told her she's too high, I'll, I'll take a stab at 25. All right. So it's 10%. Wow. And if you think that's kind of outrageous, just go back to last time you were listening to somebody. Can you remember more than 10% of what they said? The answer is no. If you put pictures with it, you can increase it three days later from 10% to 65%. Pictures increase your retention from 10% to 65%. Why is that important? If you're just putting up text and bullet points and talking, you think you're conveying a lot of information. Well, you are at that very moment, but no one's going to remember it. So it's a total waste of time. And three days later, you don't even know what 10% they're going to remember. If you put photos, they're going to remember 65%. And that continues on even after that third day. That is the reason uh, text and bullet points don't work in PowerPoint. So what do you do when you have 
case law or all this data that you want to get to people. And now you're saying, well, Shane, if I do pictures, they'll never get it. The answer is you put it in the handout. You put it in a PDF that you uh, put on Dropbox or email to them. That's where the case law is, the sites, the data, the statistics, whatever information you have. But your PowerPoint, your presentation is telling a story about why that information is important. And yeah, you can put some numbers up there or some words, but not text. So rule of thumb, pictures, less than seven words a slide. And the practice, what the best practices are 32 font. My God, that's so small. I'm doing 40. I'm doing 70 font. Big words, big pictures. And I haven't dumbed it down, but I'm making it very interesting. And then, Jasmine, what you said, they're listening to you and not distracted by the text on the slides. The picture is supporting what you're talking about. And now you've, you've really got them. You're talking, conveying information in a story. And now you've got a picture on a slide that's supporting what you're saying. And now you're engaged both sides of the brain, the visual side, the verbal side, and you're knocking it out of the park. I know you already are. But for others that aren't doing that, that's the best way to convey information. If you haven't read it, I've got to send this to you. It's a There's this guy named Edward Tuft. Have you ever heard of him? He's a professor. Sure. Yeah. And he's got this thing. I took of, him. I took from him. Oh, did you really? Oh, then you know more than I do. He's got this little, little, it's like a kind of a handout. It's called a, but it's about the dangers of PowerPoint. And he says exactly what you say. It's I think oh here cognitive style of PowerPoint, but he says exactly what you had say. Do not use bullets. Use handouts. And but what he uses as an example is really interesting. Is the um, the Challenger disaster? He goes through the powerpoints that were used to brief NASA on what the failure mechanism was. And he basically his point is because it was presented in PowerPoint, they dismissed the nuance about the leaky gaskets. Anyway, I'll try it's it's he says very much what you say. That's fascinating. Well I think what's what's David and Jasmine, what's um I find curious about all of this is these principles seem so obvious once you once you see them, but not many people are doing it. I mean Steve Jobs did the same thing. Picture, one word, right? So he's one of the great communicators and thought leaders out there. Why everyone doesn't do that? I think one reason is it takes a lot of effort to only have one word on a PowerPoint and tell a story as opposed to, oh, I don't have time. I don't have time to put it all together. I'm going to throw up uh, my speech or my lecture or my story to the jury on a PowerPoint, and then I can just read it. And I think that's why most people do it that way, even though they know it's not as effective or they're in denial that it's not as effective as it could be. I mean, I think the key is you really do have to prepare, right? If you're not reading your lecture off the slides, then you've got to do a bunch of memorization and preparation. And to encourage people to do it that way, it's a lot more rewarding when you put the time in the front end and get some exciting pictures and tell a story. You'll be a lot more comfortable up there because you'll see the engagement from the audience, whoever it is, and you'll see that you're persuading them. And persuasion is just really connecting with people, right? And that is a very nice reward as opposed to doing what most everyone else is doing 
And then people on their cell phone, not in law school where you're teaching, but in other places, they're distracted. They're not looking at you. So the payoff is big, not only an outcome, but also just in the moment when you're giving this information. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, law school—it's—it's. It's, I don't know if the class you teach has, but you know, we we have Wi-Fi, and the, those guys, kids can be on their computer. They could be doing anything. They could go Amazon shopping. We don't know what they're doing. So, which I don't know if you have the same challenge for you teach. All right, Jasmine. So I'll ask you. So you're the you're are you Gen Z by? I can't tell what generation you're. I'm a you're uh, middle millennial, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, based on your podcast. All right. So <laughs> the question is. Um, do you think it's fair or unfair to tell students, college or law school, hey, no laptops in class as a policy? Do you do y'all have that decision or do you make that or not when you're teaching? Yeah, we just let them have it. I, I can't imagine saying that to law students. It, it's it's the laptop is almost like a security blanket at this point. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. And I think you would agree, though, right, that the is is a distraction because they are getting channels information just as a segue. So the other part of brain science is that our human brain really has only one channel to receive information. So when we think we're multitasking or our law students have their laptop and they're listening to you, but they're also checking whatever it is, texts from friends or emails, studies have shown that we really can't multitask. And what happens is we're switching from one channel of information to a second one. And every time we switch, there's a gap of about a half a second when we switch from one channel to a second channel. And during that gap, we're not processing information. So we're missing it. So you can't really multitask. And then the other studies show that when you go back to your original task, there's a learning curve to get back where you were when you left it. So this idea of multitasking and being super efficient, we're really not. And you'll be more efficient if you do what your brain is meant to do, which is to receive one channel of information at a time. So I've thought about that a lot. And I try and stop multitasking because I just know I think I'm efficient, but that's not being efficient. I've done a lot of uh, empirical data collection on this. Okay. <laughs> if you're watching Netflix and looking at your phone, you've got no idea what's happening on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> That's clear. Yes. Do you let the, uh, the students in your SMU class have a laptop? So, Dave, that, that is so weird. I th- in the past years, I said no, and most of them liked it. But a lot of them like to take notes on their laptops, right? So now you're taking away their form of taking notes. And so this year I allowed it. And whenever I have a guest speaker, I say no laptops. We're listening and we're going to show respect in that we're just going to pay attention. I don't know. I think next year I would probably say no laptops. And there's kind of a a bit of a groan. And then they like it because it it forces you to be interesting because if you're not, they got nothing else to do, right? But yeah, I think it's um, it's for their benefit, although they might not realize it. And then my class is more of a performance-based persuasion, trial skills. So the note-taking, there's not a lot of note-taking. We're in contracts, right? I think you would have to do a lot of note-taking in it. And I'd feel bad about taking away a computer if they're quicker at note-taking. I mean, I, I, I assume based on studies that the younger generations don't handwrite as well as as we did. So 
I wouldn't want to limit them, right, in, in that respect. Does your class involve a lot of student participation? Yeah, it's a lot of a lot of that. So that engagement is also helpful, not having laptops just I don't know, but you know, it's a hard call. We don't need to go down this path, but they've got their information, the syllabus, the reading material on their laptops. So they're pulling that up and reading it. So this year I let them do it and I go back and forth. Ah, that sounds good. Well, maybe we got to get some tips. So Jasmine and I have been trying to make ours more participatory because literally at the end of the year, the reviews say, oh, we like that class where they, you know, where we got to do something. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's just hard to come up with exercises, you know. Well, and as Jasmine said, people are scared to speak in public, right? And at law school, when you're calling on them, that is speaking in public. For me, it's like, well, let's do it now before it really counts. And I engage people to do it. You know, one trick is there's no wrong answer. If you say that sincerely, that'll be such a refreshing change from the other professors where some like to embarrass students or if they haven't don't have the right answer, kind of show why they don't have the right answer. And I never do that. So I'm trying to encourage a, I don't say safe atmosphere, but an atmosphere that's encouraging for people to make mistakes because I made plenty in law school and I want to make sure they make them now when it doesn't matter and I can help them when I can help them and not later when Jasmine sends them off to a court scheduling hearing and <laughs> they get scared. They're doing it for the first time, right? So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, you, you know, uh, we still watch the paper chase before law school and uh, everyone remembers that scene with the professor that's like, here's a dime, go call your mother. You're never going to be an attorney because he gave a bad answer in class. Exactly, right. <laughs> Try not to be that guy. So how would you take the principles that we just talked about or other principles and translate those into being an effective, persuasive through writing? That's a great question, David. I've talked to a lot of judges in, in writing all my books and I, I'll ask them, you know, what is your one suggestion to all the lawyers I'm trying to reach? And they say, tell me what you want me to do. And what lawyers do in their writing is they have these long briefs, alternative arguments. They go on and on instead of just simply saying, this is the issue. This is what we want you to do. And this is why you should do it in a simple form up front. And that sounds simple when you would think most people do that. But most judges read all these briefs and they still don't quite know what the strongest <laughs> argument. And why should I do it? Because the lawyer feels like, well, I don't want to narrow it down. I want to give the judge 10 reasons instead of my best reason. And if you give 10 reasons, you're taking away from your best reason, even if you put it first. And that's the problem with writing is being concise, direct. Brian Garner, you know, preaches this for, for the lawyers out there know him, but non-lawyers, he's kind of the the guru on writing simple and making it clear. And he says the same thing. Why does he say it? Because Aristotle said it, because these are principles that have worked for thousands of years. Not a lot of people do it because we're afraid if we leave out our 10th argument, because our client wants us to put it in there, we'll have missed something and you're really taking away from your best argument. So that's what I encourage. Put it up front, 
narrow your arguments, don't make them alternative, and just make it very clear to the judge. And then David and Jasmine, all these lawyers and outside of the legal world, it's the same thing. Admit your weakness. Don't wait for the other side to point it out. So just be upfront about it. You know, this case has a problem. Whatever, my client did this, but that shouldn't stop the court from whatever. So just admit it so that the other side doesn't come back and make you look like a fool because you've hid something from the court. So that's it. Honest, candid, start strong with your best argument. Kind of obvious things, David, right? But people don't do it. I don't know why. You're right. It's so difficult to to take an argument that you think might be decent, but you know, is a long shot, like a constitutional argument, you know, this is, you know, violates the interstate commerce clause or something, you know, that's never going to go anywhere. But they sometimes you feel, ah, we got to throw that one in too. And I I can see (laughs) it just doesn't help. Right. So I guess there's the issue of waiver, right? You know, so if I don't put it in, have I waived it, but then throw it in a foot, just whatever, but don't, don't go on and on because now you're, I mean, do judges really want to read a 30 page brief when they could read a 10 page brief? No. So. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I want to ask you about one other thing on writing because I see this a lot and, and I just wanted to get your reaction. Maybe this is a loaded question. You see a lot of kind of snarky writing in the, at least in the, the big law firm era where, you know, in addition to trying to make the legal points, what the lawyers try to do is show you know, the other side sandbagged you judge or the other side's trying to, you know, conceal this. And, you know, we see a lot of that in our briefing. I mean, Jasmine, you might want to expand on that. Yeah. Sometimes it's all, almost bordering on an ad hominem attack of the other side and saying, you know, they have absolutely no merit for saying this. It makes zero sense whatsoever. This this kind of I don't even how to know how to describe it, like aggressive accusatory language in briefs. Yeah. So we want to get your reaction to that, Shane, if you don't mind. I always like to pretend that I'm live in the courtroom. So I never want to make something personal and always stay professional. And I think in, when you're writing and you're at your computer and you're submitting a brief, it's a lot easier to be snarky and more on the uh, personal tax than if you were in the room with a judge there, would you really want to say that if it wasn't absolutely true? And even if it was absolutely true, do you look good by making a personal attack? And I think the answer to that is it's always better to be professional. That's what we're in. Then you can make a strong professional argument. I think that will resonate better with the judge or the clerk that's reading it than uh, something that's borderline personal and yeah, not what it's all about. Taking that, that what you just said, in terms of just the tenor of a presentation, either to, well, let's talk about just to a jury. Cause you know, some, some trial lawyers at least seem super bombastic and, you know, sort of loud, bombastic and uh, hand waving and stuff like that. And others are more, they have a different style. They're quieter, more soft-spoken and you know, Tim from our class, he tries a bunch of cases. He's a very nice guy. He's the nicest guy in the world and he's very soft-spoken, and, and, but he's done very, quite well at trials. So I'm just curious about what your thoughts are on that, that particular issue. Well, I think of the Oscar Wilde quote that said, be yourself, you know, everyone else is already taken. <laughs> and for that reason, if you're bombastic, why would you tone it down if that's naturally who you are? And if you're quiet, I wouldn't want you to go in there and be uh, a bombastic person. But having said that, 
I think focus groups, and they can be informal, you know, family and friends. Does the bombastic lawyer among his friends and family, does that work or should he or she tone it down a little bit to be more persuasive? And should the quiet person, which is what I used to be, I used to be like really quiet. And I would ask my friends in the courtroom, you know, how could I improve? They say, well, be more passionate. Ugh, I don't want to be more passionate. <laughs> That's not me. But even though it wasn't me, I found out it really was me. And there was an inner part of me that could be more passionate and still be who I was, just a more complete person. And so I would never be bombastic, but I'm a lot more passionate and caring now than when I started out. So those friends, the informal focus group, pushed me to grow into a, a more full lawyer than I otherwise would have been. So I say to that, everyone's got their own style, but can you tweak it to be better? I don't know. Find a focus group and friends and colleagues in the courtroom to say, hey, Shane, you should do this. And maybe, Shane, you're too nice. You need to be a little more aggressive. So now I've kind of developed to be more aggressive, but still be within what I believe is my strength, which is trying to be the nicest person in the courtroom and the most repaired and the no most knowledgeable that's not going to work for everybody else. Someone else wants to be the most passionate person in the courtroom. And that's why Oscar Wilde said that quote is they, that's who they are. And that's who I am. And I can't be Jasmine. I can't be David and y'all can't be me. So let's just be the best at who we are, but we got to figure that out. Right. So that takes some effort. Speaking of focus groups, we did one of our, I don't know if we've aired that, that podcast yet, but one of our guests was a, a jury consultant. Actually, he had a lot to say about sort of changing attitudes and people being more apt to believe conspiracy theories and more anti-corporate and, and things such that. And I don't know if you've seen that or witnessed that. And then two, just even putting that aside, what are your thoughts about those kinds of focus groups, jury consultants, and you know those kinds of exercises? I think you need a focus group before you go to trial or you ah. really have no idea the value of your case. And aside from that, you know, one of our biggest problems is overconfidence because we've lived with a case so long. And I think a trial consultant can show you the weaknesses. I mean, there's a funny study that says 90% of the drivers think they're above average drivers. <laughs> There was a, a recent article that said like 50% of people believe that they could land a commercial airplane during an emergency. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> there you go. Right. And when you live with a case and you've had a client for years telling you, this is why I'm right. And you've built up your whole case to defend or uh, help the client with your case, you lose perspective on it just naturally in a focus group or uh, a consultant can help you go, all right, these are weaknesses you've forgotten about. This is how would I attack that case. And that just makes you stronger. So the feedback, um, I, I can't remember the study at the moment, but the way to keep getting better at anything is to get feedback. And if you don't get feedback, you're never going to reach your highest goals, no matter if it's guitar playing, vocal, athletics, or you've got to get the feedback. And that's what lawyers can do. And you can do it in any setting, um, whatever it is, is to learn from that. I'm sensitive. I don't like feedback. I really don't like to hear it, but I know it's vital. And so I just kind of handcuff myself to the chair and go, all right, give it to me. 
because I know it'll make me better. And that's how to improve. And this overconfidence is a real problem in whatever we're trying to present. I did want to go back to something when you were talking about using pictures and presentations. I've tried to do this. I do fall back on bullet points a lot. But do you have any tips on how to pick these kind of you know, memorable visual aids? How, how do you go about finding something that's going to connect with your audience? Right, Jasmine. So that's kind of the art of it all, right? So if you Google sand dunes, you can get 100 sand dunes. And which one is the one that conveys it well, if you're trying to show, hey, there's a changing landscape in the law or the business. So there's an art to it. Um, I wouldn't overthink it too much. And I think the more experienced you get with pictures, you'll just get more comfortable with it. So hokey pictures are fine. That's still better than text and bullet points. And then you'll find out, yeah, maybe that was a little too hokey. Maybe I'll try something different next time. But it just takes practice like with anything. And there's kind of having an eye for it, but you develop the eye by practicing it, not avoiding it. So I would encourage anyone out there, try your next PowerPoint, whatever it is, with seven words, pictures, and see what happens. And eh, maybe a little hokey, but maybe not. And it'll still be better than what everyone else is used to seeing. So you're really not hokey. You're like, oh, wow, this is advanced. But you might think it could be better. Right. And I will say, I see a lot of attorneys try to put pictures in their slides, and it's almost always a gavel, (laughs) like a picture of a gavel, right? So I'm trying to avoid that. (laughs) So that's a good lesson too, Jasmine, just as a a starting point, pick something different that you haven't seen a hundred different times, right? Right. No, this, the sand dunes being a a, a changing landscape. That's great. Yep. I came up with that one. (laughs) Are there any other books that you'd recommend to our audience, whether they be directed towards lawyers or just other issues that, that that they ought to they ought to read or something that they ought to see or so for the general audience, um, winning at public speaking is a book I wrote, and that's for business professionals of any kind that are trying to be more persuasive in whatever their venue is. For lawyers, it's the winning at persuasion for lawyers. So winning at public speaking for businesses winning at persuasion for lawyers are my two books on persuasion. So I think those are great starting points in those books at the end of chapters, I have recommended reading. If you want to learn more about brain science, fear, public speaking, PowerPoints, et cetera. So that's a good list. And then what I've already mentioned is for other people, I think Cialdini's got a great book on uh, influence and persuasion. And then you mentioned David uh, Nudge is another good book on brain science. I think those are good starting points for this uh, realm of people who are more interested in the persuasion. Do you make a conscious effort to sort of stay abreast of that particular science and in, in addition to doing everything else you're doing with training lawyers, writing books, et cetera? I do. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how good I am at it, but I, yeah, I certainly try and stay abreast, but I don't do original research on the, on the brain science, but I certainly try and uh, see what's out there and what's new. And of course, yeah, that's how you got to stay current. I started reading um, Winning at Public Speaking in preparation for, for this podcast and, and have been really enjoying it so far. I, I really liked that Mark Twain quote in there, you know, the observation that all speakers get nervous, they have jitters. That is a normal part of speaking. I'm going to recommend that to to the junior associates I work with. And it's been a great read. 
Good. Well, thank you for that feedback. So I appreciate it very much. This has been fantastic. There's a lot of meat in this podcast. So I, I'm hopeful that uh, that it gets a, a good listen from a lot of people. There's a lot of takeaways here that, that are really exciting. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, that was a great show. Thanks for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred listening platform. 